0: Good morning, all. Oh, y'all are awake. All right. Uh, Before we jump into the text today, I would just love if uh, you would pray with me. Is that cool? Two thumbs up? We're ready to go. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We thank you for this day. We thank you for your goodness to us. And Lord, I know that there are people who have come um, into this place, and they need a word today. And I pray that you would just speak to them in the only way that you can. And Father, I pray that you would... um, Allow it not to just be my words, but whatever it is that you would have for all of us. Let us not just go through uh, just the paces of this time together as, as I teach from your word, but allow us to not only learn something, but also um, apply something from what is talked about. And I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Well, we have uh, actually been in this series for five weeks. This is week number six. This is the final lap of, uh, of this series. And it has been a blur for me, and I don't know about you, but it certainly has for me. But just in case you weren't here for some of it, um, I'll kind of get you caught up. I'll give you the the quick uh, rundown. The services and the sermons were a lot longer, but I'm going to give you the the short end of it um, before we get into today. Are you ready? I'll go with that. One person's ready. Good enough for me. Not holding me back. So, thank you. So... What we've talked about throughout this whole series is, and it's been this challenging question how are you using what you've been given? So we've looked at this question through the lens of a bunch of different things about your life. The first thing we talked about literally was how are you using the life that you've been entrusted with, that all of us have, have been given a life. And the, the teaching that week, uh, it said that if we have the strength of life of 70 to 80 years, it's just kind of like some hypothetical number. If we have the strength of years from 70 to 80 years, we, are, uh, we have been entrusted with that life. So that life is, is valuable, not because I say so, not just because you say so, because God says so. And yet we've been invited into this plan to entrust something that's been given to us, the life that's been given to us. And in the midst of that life, certain things particularly have been given to us. We've been given a certain amount of time. Now, all of us, we would say, man, I really wish I had more time, but we're not getting more time. And yet we, we've been entrusted with a certain amount of time. You've been entrusted with some relationships. You've been entrusted with some money. You've been entrusted with gifts and talents, Each and every one of you, if you're a Christian or not a Christian, you have gifts and talents. And I believe, and I believe this is what the word of God says, that even all of our gifts and talents and our time and our energy and our resources and our relationships are not to be just spent on us. So what I've posed is two different paths that we can receive the things of life. We can either receive it through, the, through the, the lens that I'm an owner, that I'm the owner, I'm the creator, it originated with me, it's about me. And I said that the dangerous thing there is if you follow that path, it actually leads to life's greatest disappointments. Because if you're the owner, all of your influence, all of your, your financial resources, all of your gifts and talents, all of your uh, relationships, all of those things, if you're the owner, it dies with you. It dies with you. So there's a better way. If we would even start to believe, and I know that some of you have, we started to believe that we've been entrusted with something so valuable and we, we've been entrusted with it and we're not actually the owners of it, that we're the stewards of it. It's kind of a Bible word, but if, when I say steward, you can just replace it in your mind with manager. It means kind of the same thing, that we're actually managing something that's been given to us. So if we're managing or stewarding something, that ultimately leads to a whole different path. That actually leads to to some of life's greatest contributions because all of a sudden, and this is what we've learned for the the first five weeks, we've learned that we can use the short span of our life to impact eternity, to impact eternity, that it doesn't just have to end with us, that the... The redemption story of our life, the story of your life, the influence that God has given you in your life, it can be so significant that you can actually shape someone else's life for eternity. And that's a pretty big deal. So we go into today's talk and I go into it assuming a couple things. And maybe I shouldn't make these assumptions, but I I, I go into it with this assumption. I go into it with with the idea that you kind of, most of you probably get what DBC is about. That we're a church trying to reach unchurched and dechurched people for the cause of Jesus. We want to help people grow in their relationship with God. That's what we want to do. And if you're new new to DBC, that's probably new info. And that's cool. Consider yourself informed. There you go. But I, I come into it with that mindset. But also I come into it with another mindset. That maybe you've started to believe, not perfectly, but increasingly, you've started to believe and act on a belief that you're not actually the owner of your life at all. That you're actually managing something that that we believe as Christians that God has actually given you. That he has given life and he takes life away. We don't choose that date. He ultimately chooses that date. So I I go into this whole text and you're going to see this. That the people, the disciples, and they become kind of apostles. They do some apostle work and it's a Bible word. I'll get to that in a minute. But they're actually doing something significant. They're actually doing good with what God has given them. As a matter of fact, they had been given these supernatural gifts. And, and they were out using those gifts very well. But w- there's kind of a challenge with this too. I'll, I'll introduce it this way. Um, who remembers science class or biology class when, when you would have to dissect things? Remember that? Yeah, that was, I, I love that. And typically when it comes to dissecting things, if you're homeschooled, I don't even know what you dissected or anything, right? Maybe it was like pig's feet. You went to Kroger. I have no idea what you, what you do in that situation. I really don't know. But I went to public school. So they're to blame. I went to public school. And so I look forward to, and, and we, a lot of my friends, we look forward to the day that we would have to dissect things. And we were told early in the year, yeah, you guys are going to dissect this. And we're like, oh, we just could not wait. So guys typically, when it comes to dissecting things, the guys are like, yeah, this is awesome. I just can't wait to fling some formaldehyde on, on somebody that's there, right? That's kind of the story. That was my story. And, and yet most of the ladies, when it comes to dissecting things, they're like, Eve, that's like the worst day of school, right? Right. Thank you. Illustrated my point beautifully. So that's kind of the way it is. My, the challenge we're going to have today is we go in and we're going to dissect a text that's very common to you. It's very common. As a matter of fact, it's, it, it's, the, it's the miracle of the loaves and the fish. So it's a miracle that most people have heard of. It. If you've ever been in church or you went to Sunday school, I mean, when it comes to this particular miracle, this, this miracle is so common, it's in all four Gospels. So it's commonly talked about church or or church person or not church person. It's so commonly talked about. But I believe what what we get out of this passage and what really is in this passage is a story much bigger than just a miracle. I believe that the the, the best part of this story, when we dissect and we open it up, I think once we open it up that we're not going to see something that's so predictable. We're going to see something that's unpredictable, but yet it has such a great implication on our life. But before we get there, I want to kind of set the stage with what is happening with the disciples prior to this uh, passage we're going to study today. In Mark chapter 6, verse 7, it says this, calling the 12 to him, this is Jesus, calling the 12 to himself, to Jesus, he sent them out two by two. So they had been his disciples, that means learner, and now they're being sent out, and that word is apostle, to the, the word apostle, the Bible word apostle means sent out. So now they're, they're disciples, they had been around Jesus, they, he was the rabbi and teacher, they were hanging out with him like all the time, and now now he's, he's entering into this discussion of, and just say, hey, this, this message is going to go, it's going to go beyond us. It's going to go beyond um, just this little group of 12. So he's sending the 12. He calls them to himself, and he's sending them out two by two. And this is some of the stuff that he does. In Mark 6, chapter, or chapter 6, verse 12, it says, They went out, same group of people, and it preached that, that people should repent. They drove out many demons and anointed many sick people with oil and healed them. So would you agree with me that these are pretty good things? They were doing some good things. They had already started to take into account some of the things we've actually talked about over the first five weeks. They were stewarding their life. They were managing their life. They were, it seems like they were starting to manage their time and they were using something that God had given them. Jesus had given them the authority to go out and to drive out demons and anoint sick people. And I have to tell you, that's a pretty good thing. They were busy um, for the Lord. I, I would say that probably no one in here um, was like preaching repentance to anyone on the way in, right? No one did that. Anyone? Maybe to your kids in the back seat, I don't know, maybe. But probably not. I would say that probably none of you were like driving out demons on the way here, right? Maybe driving out some bad attitudes, but no demons. Right? <laughs> And no one was like flinging oil outside of the door for the sick people as they're coming in because it's so dry here and you've been infected with sinus infection or whatever. You're not flinging oil, right? So so that's not your story. But what a part of this that does correlate with your story is this. They were doing good things. And I believe that you are too. I believe if you've you've been here for a week or or even some of these weeks or even even in your life, I'm believing the best in you. You're trying to steward your life well. They were doing good things, just as I believe that that you and I are trying to do good things. But there's such a valuable lesson that is found in this passage, even in the midst of people doing good things. Mark 6, verse 30 through 44, I welcome you to read if you have a Bible or tablet, iPad, whatever there are iPad 15, whatever they're at right now, or um, a Bible. If you don't have a Bible, there's actually some spread throughout the seats um, that you can just pick up. Gospel of Mark from the New Testament says this. The apostles, do you see the change in the word? Now he says the apostles before it said disciples, but they had been sent out. So now he's calling the same group of people apostles. The apostles gathered around Jesus and reported to him all that they had done and taught. Then, because so many people were coming and going, that they did not even have a chance to eat. This is what Jesus said to them. This is so, so important. This next part of this passage. He says, come with me by yourselves to a quiet place and get some rest. So they went away by themselves in a boat to a solitary place. But many who saw them leaving recognized them and ran on foot from all the towns and gathered there ahead of them. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them. Because they were like sheep without a shepherd. I don't know if you're a person who underlines things in your Bible, but if you are underline or a highlighter in your Bible, you may want to underline or highlight because they were like sheep without a shepherd. That's going to become intricately important here in just a moment. So he began teaching them many things. By this time, it was late in the day, so his disciples came to him. Hey, this is a remote place, they said, and it's already very late. Send the people away so that they can go to the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered, Jesus answered, you give them something to eat. This is going to be a problem because they don't have much to eat. How many loaves do you have? He asked, go and see. When he found out, they said 5 and 2 fish verse 39 then jesus directed them to all have the to have all of the people sit down in groups on the green grass also if you're an underliner or a highlighter you may want to underline or highlight green grass that's going to be important too So they sat down in groups of hundreds and fifties, taking the five loaves and two fish, and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke the loaves. Then he gave them to his disciples to set them before the people. He also divided the two fish among them all. They all ate and were satisfied, and the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces of bread and fish. The number of the men who had eaten was 5,000. Now, this passage most likely is very familiar to you. And the things that stands out is what happened with how many fish and how many loaves they started with and the 12 basketfuls they had when it was all over. But I believe this is not even the main point of this text. I mean, of course, there's an amazing thing that's done here. God provides this miracle in front of just thousands of people. As a matter of fact, it says at the last part of this, it gives the account of 5,000 men. Now, this doesn't take into account the mamas, and the grandmamas, and the granddaddies, and all of the kids. That doesn't take into account all of them. So it's just literally the men is 5,000. This is projected to be a number that's greater than the population of Dublin that's being fed off this small amount. And granted, it's a miracle. It should be talked about. It's you, you see God's power, and we have to believe that God is more powerful than us because he is. But for us to live changed lives, we have to understand that. But I believe that the main part of this text is not just sitting back in awe of this miracle, although it is an awe-inspiring miracle. But if we go back through, and we're going to dissect this passage, look again at verse 30 if you would. The apostles gathered around Jesus, and they responded to him all that they had done and taught. So they're going back. Certainly, they were proud of the work that they had done. It was good. They were obedient. When Jesus sent them out, they were disciples. Now they're apostles. They were sent out driving out demons. I mean, good grief. That's pretty awesome, right? They're anointing people with oil. I don't even know what that looks like in that context. Like, that's what they were doing. And they were going out doing their thing. And they were doing a good work. Would we agree that's a good, good work? Yeah, that's a good work. Here's the problem. Continue on in the same passage. Then, because so many people were coming and going, they did not have a chance to eat. This is the problem. This is the problem. They had been doing all of this good work. They had, they had done some great things, miraculous things. Everybody would look at them and they would be in awe of Jesus of what was going on. And you and I can be tempted to do such great work. But we, what we can do is fall into the same trap that they did. They were not taking care of themselves they got to a point where they were just busy serving everyone else, and they weren't caring for themselves. So what I just read to you is they had not even had time to eat. They were not taking care of themselves. I want to give you five signs of burnout. And I think this is one of the underlying themes of this passage, or is the, the possibility and the reality of burnout. They were not taking care of. Of themself. And we are so tempted, get this, even if you're doing good things, even if you're a good person and you're going out and serving other people and you just want to volunteer your time over and over and over, the temptation is to not take care of yourself. It's just to not take care of yourself. As a matter of fact, it's amazing to me how God works and how he works through other people. Prior to, or actually I was studying for this a few weeks ago. And I was really struggling with with this whole thing and I I just got kind of to a roadblock and I realized um, through my wife's help, she told me, not even knowing that I was preaching this, she told me, she said, if you don't stop, she knew my schedule was crazy. And she said, if you don't stop and take some time out for you, you will have nothing to offer anyone else. And what she was telling me is to look out for the first sign of burnout. She says, if you're not taking care of yourself, you will have nothing to offer anyone else. If you're not taking care of yourself spiritually, you have nothing to offer everyone else. As a matter of fact, you'll be an endangerment to yourself and to others. And the, and the problem with that is you won't even know it. You won't even know it. It happens so subtly. So we have to take care of ourselves. Conversation that that um, some of the leadership, AJ and I, have been just kind of wrestling with really over the last couple months, probably the last four or five months. is just this idea of silence and solitude, and Jesus provides them some some opportunity for some silence and solitude. But you know what we 've been given opportunities too, and when I think of not taking care of ourselves it 's not taking care of ourselves to withdraw from the crowd it 's not taking care of ourselves enough instead we 're just giving and giving giving doing the good things, stewarding things. but if we don 't stop and actually care for our own soul, we will have nothing to offer anyone else so what AJ and i 've been talking about and wrestling with how to live this out and how to honestly to share it with you potentially one day is is how to how to, how to have uh, uh, maintain a lifestyle of silence and solitude. Silence and solitude. You see, that's the way you, you care for yourself. If you're a Christian, listen to me. That's how you, you care for yourself spiritually. You don't necessarily just do it with the masses. This is important. But this is this is an hour and 15 minutes a week. It's the silence and solitude in the middle of the week. It's the time where you... You can't necessarily completely withdraw, but you just get away to a quiet place and you just reflect on the goodness of God. So not taking care of yourself, first sign of burnout. The second one is you just have a limited amount of energy. The danger with this, and this seems so obvious, but this is not that obvious, actually, because this is the slow decline of burnout. That you just will just have a limited amount of energy and you'll walk around and say, you know what? I am so tired, but you will have nothing to pinpoint the problem to be. So you will say, I am just so tired and you wouldn't even know why you're tired. But you'll just have a limited amount of energy. and And the problem is because you have not stopped long enough. You haven't stopped long enough. You've been out using gifts, doing your thing, helping other people, volunteering here, not able to say no. And sometimes you have to say no to some good things so you can say yes to some great things. You have to say no to some good things, things that you know even that would help other people. But maybe there's something great on the other side of the horizon. And by saying no, you allow yourself some time to say yes to something even more significant. But we have to make a conscious choice. We do. So when we get to this limited amount of energy and if, if you live in the context of family, if you don't live alone or if you, you have family members, a wife, kids or whatever, maybe, maybe just give each other a permission to, to kind of examine each other's lives and say, is this me? Am, am I showing signs of burnout? Man, because if you could get this, the earlier you get this, the better it's gonna be, not only in your life but in all of your relationships. So a limited amount of energy and you may not even know where uh, the drain of your energy is, but maybe it's because you simply say yes and never say no. The third one is kind of complicated. The third one is just avoiding others. I've seen this over and over and over again. I see this with people who are just on the trajectory of busyness. They're so busy, busy, busy. They can't say no. And because they're so busy, they get to the point where they're not taking care of themselves. They have a limited amount of energy. And then they just get to the crisis point in their life and they start avoiding other people, even people who love them. Even people who care for them, even people who would be able to look at their lives and say, oh, I just want better for you. You are just running as such. You're redlining right now. Don't you see that you're redlining? You can only redline for so long before you blow up. And oftentimes we just withdraw from other people, even the people that could help us, even the people that would be honest with us and say, hey, I know you're going out and doing a you're doing a good, good thing. I know you are. I I know that you are, but when's the last time you stopped and taking care of yourself? When's the last time, mom, you actually stopped and got out of the house? When's the last time dads, listen to me, when's the last time you dads have given your mom permission to step outside of the house and say, I'm going to handle it for a little while. I want to give you a couple hours to just go breathe, go somewhere, go do something to care for your soul. You see, that's the service that we can provide husband to wife. And of course, wives, you could provide this for your husband. Just give them a break and say, you know what? Go out and take a couple hours to yourself. And this should be a service we provide as we love one another. And this should be something that we even do, uh, just even as, as Christians, people who just love one another, just to look at each other's life and say, let me take your kids for a little while so you can get away. I see that you're redlining. I want to take your kids for a little while. So we don't get to the point where we avoid others. But also, number four, this one is obvious. Your time is consumed. So even if there's a really, really good opportunity, that's a great opportunity. You're like, man, I really wish I could do this, but I can't because I made this obligation and this obligation. And I volunteered here and I said yes to them and I've got to work overtime and I made these these um, commitments and I've got this debt. So I've got to work and I can't say no. But what if what if. Before your time was all consumed with all those things you said yes to, what if you put some, some safeguards up, some boundaries up, and you said, you know what? I don't want to burn out at all. So I want to safeguard my own soul. I want to safeguard the souls of the folks in my, my home, in my inner circle of relationships. I want to look out for them because they could be blindsided by something that maybe I could help prevent. And lastly, you just have nothing left to give this is the ultimate withdrawal. This is, I don't want to volunteer anymore. I don't want to even, uh, this is the, the ultimate withdrawal. This is, this is so important. Listen to me, married folks particularly, listen. This happens in the context of marriage. This is the burnout that leads to, to adultery. This is the burnout to leads, to, that leads husband and wife apart. This is the burnout that ultimately leads one of them to say, you know what? The grass is greener on the other side and I'm gone. But if we would look at the signs of burnout and we could identify those not only in our own lives, but also in one another's lives, we can actually prevent divorce. I see it over and over and over again. But oftentimes when when that comes to my office, it's after the wheels have already fallen off. And they come in and they're looking to see what happened. And I can go back and I can say, you know what? Have you taken any time for yourself spiritually? No. Have you taken any time to build in your relationship Spiritually, for the two of you, no. Have you, have you actually been committed to, to biblical community for any amount of time? No. It's obvious to me, but yet it's so not obvious to them. So these things should be so embedded in us. This happens at all ages and all stages of life. So if you see yourself, you feel your heart pushing away from other people, that's number three, you're starting to avoid other people. If you get to the point where you just have a limited amount of energy and you don't even know why, you don't even know why. You should be asking yourself some questions. You should be asking yourself some questions. Am I involved in too many things? Maybe for you, it's so obvious as looking as your time is consumed. Now, the burden of burnout is cured, actually, right in uh, the latter part of verse 31. And this is what the latter part of verse 31 says. Come with me by yourselves to a quiet place and get some busyness. Is that what it says? Get some overcommitments? Become so financially obligated that you have to work overtime? Nope. It says rest. So this is this is an amazing offer of Jesus, not only to the disciples, then apostles, but also to us as the people of God. If you're if you're a follower of Christ, this is the call to you. He says, come with me by yourselves to a quiet place, not a busy place, not a loud place, a quiet place and give and get some rest. Jesus ultimately is the prize. It's not just the miracle at the end of this story that is the prize so that we would sit back in awe of God's power. Jesus is the prize of this story. I love what 1 Peter 5, verse 6 and 7 says. It says, so humble yourselves. This is a great application point for you. Listen to this. So humble yourselves under the mighty power of God. And at the right time, he will lift you up in honor. Give all of your worries and cares to God, for he cares for you. He cares for you. Personalize it. He cares for me. Oftentimes, it's so easy to think that he cares for you and we can think of others, but he cares for me. You can personalize that. He cares for you. In a personal way, Jesus died for the sins of the whole world, not a select few. The sins of the world. And in his dying, he he made your life even more valuable. So when he says, when Peter says, talking about Jesus, this invitation to come to Jesus, he says, give all of your worries and cares to God, for he cares about you. I just want to ask you this very simple question. When is the last time you've actually done this? Have you just looked in yourself to answer your own problems? Have you just quickly gone to a friend to try and you talk to them? You have them try and talk you off the wall a little bit. Yeah, you talk to them, maybe they can fix all of your problems. When's the last time? I mean, oftentimes we go to absolutely to the wrong person or the wrong place or the wrong substance to cure our soul's ills. And what Jesus Said, come with me by yourselves to a quiet place and get some rest. Saying the same thing. Peter's saying the same thing in this passage. Give all of your worries and cares to God, for he cares for you. So you will notice, actually, in verse 32 through 33... There's some things I'm not going to read it again. There's some things that are are interesting about this text. It says, come away to a solitary place. And it seems great. It seems like, well, we're going to get on a boat. We're going to be able to get away from people. But actually, they're not getting away from people because this section of geography is actually kind of hemmed in about 50 miles one way and 25 miles the other way. And they're hemmed up in up against the Sea of Galilee. So they're hemmed in up against the Sea of Galilee so they can't get away too far. So when Jesus takes the, the apostles and puts them on the boat, they would still be visible by land because there were about 200 cities, roughly two, 200, 250 small cities or villages up and around the shoreline. So as Jesus got in with the, when, with the apostles disciples, apostles, got on the boat, they would still be seen from shore. So it seems like, oh, this is awesome. Jesus, the, the solitary place, the quiet place is going to be on the lake, on the sea. But it's actually not. That's just a destination for where Jesus, I believe, would reveal the ultimate purpose of this text. So they're still visible. But yet we see, we're getting to, to the meat of things, starting in verse 34. When Jesus landed and saw the large crowd, he had compassion on them. So this is the crowd on the shore. So he lands the boat on the shore and he he looks at them and Jesus has compassion for them. Great things are about to happen. He says because he had great compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. You see, this seems so out of place. It seems so out of place. If you just look at it in the context, and maybe you've heard this story before, it just seems so out of place. It's like, Jesus landed, saw a large crowd compassion on them. They were like sheep without a shepherd. Okay, but what does this have to do with the miracle? What Jesus is is introducing here is one of the most beautiful sections, I think, anyway, my opinion, one of the most beautiful sections of Old Testament Scripture with one of the most beautiful truths of the New Testament. And this is what he's introducing right here. He's introducing this, um, this idea. He's saying he's having compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. Because he knew that all people who walk the face of the earth at one point or another are like this. We all, Isaiah 53, 6, we all like sheep have gone astray. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. That's our sin nature. That's the, the inclination of our heart not to do good, but to do evil. And that's the inclination of every person's heart before salvation. In Christ, that's the inclination of your heart. If you've never accepted Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, this is bad news for for you right now, because there is no there is no propensity in your heart to do good in the way that God would honor. Because all we like sheep have gone astray. The reason why Jesus looked upon the crowd, the crowd with compassion is because he knew they were all like sheep without a shepherd, they were all sheep without a shepherd. But look at the latter part of the verse that you see on the screen. And the Lord has laid on him, on Jesus, the iniquity of us all. That's the gospel. That the Lord would know that we are directionless, that, that we, are, uh, we need we need the shepherd because all we like sheep have gone astray. Each one tends to just go on our own way. But he had made a master plan of redemption for humanity, for those who would receive Jesus Christ as their personal Lord and Savior. Those who would ask of it, they would receive it. And he says that the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. But story doesn't end there. John 10, verse 11, Jesus says this, I am the good shepherd. I'm the good shepherd connecting some of the like the Old Testament throwback of Isaiah 53. And now Jesus is connecting the Old Testament and New Testament, which the thing is, when you actually study the Bible, you see that they are so intricately woven together. And Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. And not only is he just this isn't a boasting statement. He says, I'm the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep or for the sheep. See, that's what Jesus has done for us. This also is another way that Jesus is telling us of the gospel. So not only do you see it in the Old Testament, Isaiah, 700 years before the birth of Jesus, now you're seeing Jesus claim that he is the good shepherd and that one day that he would lay down his life for the sheep. This, of course, was before his death on the cross. So you see this connection that Jesus has compassion on the crowd because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And isn't that our story? Honestly, that's that's everybody's story. If you've received Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, you view this through the lens of grace to say, I was that sheep that needed a shepherd. I was the person who had no direction in my life. I was that hopeless, purposeless person. I was that person. We can identify with this. We all can identify with this, Christian or non-Christian. But Christians can identify this through the lens of grace because we go through and say, I was that. But the Lord laid on Jesus the iniquity of my sin. But the good shepherd laid down his life for me. But the good shepherd Jesus laid down his life for me. So all of a sudden, your life started out to have not that much value. Now your life becomes so much more valuable because you realized it was bought at a price. That the good shepherd laid down his life for you. You see, an owner will settle for propping himself up. But a manager starts to view things through the lens of grace to say, I have been entrusted with so much. I was the directionless sheep. I remember that day. And the Lord laid on Jesus the iniquity of us all. That the good shepherd laid down his life for me changes things. Also, continuing in the same theme. Going through, um, jumping ahead, if you would, to verse 39. Verse 39. Then Jesus directed them to have all the people sit down in groups on the green grass. I I want you to picture this with me because verse 39 is actually connected to Psalm 23, verses 1 through 3. It's, it's so connected. Now look at this verse, and we're going to reflect back on the original passage. The Lord, if you've ever gone to a funeral service, you've probably heard this. And it's a great passage of Scripture. It's so comforting. But what Jesus is, is connecting here is one of the most beautiful parts of the Old Testament Scripture with the reality of an experience with him. And this is what he says, the, what David says um, through the guiding of the Holy Spirit. The Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. Wouldn't that be awesome just to, to know that and live in that reality? I lack nothing. I lack nothing. He makes me lie down in green pastures. Do you see that connection? There's two times in the Bible that green grass and green pastures are connected, and this is, this is the two times. Verse 39 of the original passage, and this one. Jesus is having them sit down in green grass along this long body of water. Would you look again at the verse? That's on the screen. So now he, the, the Lord is my shepherd. Jesus is the good shepherd. He helps us to lack nothing. He makes me lie down in green pastures, in the green grass, just as the original passage. And also he leads me beside quiet waters. The original passage before the miracle happened, they're sitting down right on by the Sea of Galilee. Wow. So to me, the story isn't. Wow, this is awesome. Look what Jesus did with the loaves and the fish. That's amazing. We can tell our kids that and just to, to, just to have awe and just inspire wonder in their mind. That's awesome. And we can do that. But we as adults, as we dig in a little bit, and now you actually see the connection of Old and New Testament. This passage is about Jesus. This passage is about Jesus being the prize. This passage is telling us that Jesus is the cure for the weary soul. That's what this passage is about. That's what this is about, that he's a good shepherd providing for us what we cannot even provide for ourselves. You see, the apostles couldn't satisfy the crowds. They couldn't satisfy the crowds. They, they were stumped. They got before the crowds and were like, I don't know, what, what do we do? It was like, man, that's like all these months' wages, and like, do you want us to spend them? I'm like, this is like a one-time deal, Jesus. Are you sure you want, you want me to spend it? I'm, I'm going to blow all of our savings right now like right now on these people. But I think in this moment, Jesus was leveraging something with them. They were busy doing good things, but he was showing them something even more, uh, what I think even more important than the miracle that happens. He was showing them that you have to care for your own soul. You have to care for your own soul. And you also see, as every passage of Scripture, when you study, this is good for you to know, every passage of Scripture that you read through, you should ask yourself two questions, two questions, two questions. You should ask yourself these two questions. What does this say about God? What does it say about God? And what is he telling me to do? What does it say about God and what is he telling me to do? And when I look at this passage, you you see the the miracle of God and that's great, that's powerful, and that's outstanding. But I think that what you see about God is that he cares for the weary soul. And the second thing is this, we need to spend time and rest in his presence. That's the point of this text. You cannot... Be as effective in stewarding when you're infected with burnout. You can't. You cannot be as effective in stewarding when you're infected with burnout. Jesus is the cure for the weary soul. So the bottom line is this. If I were to take all of this whole message and whittle it down to a statement, it is this. Before you burn out, Buy into the rest that Jesus provides. Before you burn out, that's why I gave you the signs. Before you burn out, buy into the rest that Jesus provides. He's invited us into this rest. We just have to receive the invitation. We need to do what he's telling us to do. So today, we're actually going to end the service by taking the Lord's Supper. And as we transition into the Lord's Supper, I just want to say a few things. AJ, for one, you can come up now. I want to say just a few things about the Lord's Supper. I thought that we would go and we would just celebrate this, this passage and the truth of this passage. And we would bring it right back to Jesus himself. So we're going to take the Lord's Supper because the Lord's Supper, it it is in two parts. It's the wafer. It's symbolic of the broken body that Jesus offered for the iniquity, the sin of us all. And also the shed shed blood is uh, being symbolized in the grape juice. We don't drink wine here. So it is symbolic. The grape juice is symbolic of the shed blood that was the blood that was shed for mankind. So for us, we're actually going to reflect um, during this time of the Lord's Supper, and then we're going to respond with a song. But I want to give you some simple instructions if you, um, if you would um, listen. If you're a believer, you're a follower of Christ, you've given your life to Christ, there is a moment in time where you say, I have given my life to Jesus. Here's what I would invite you to do. Um, When we stand, it's going to be in a minute, but when we stand, if you're a Christian and you're in good standing with the church, you're in good standing with the Lord, you're in fellowship, and you've given your life to Jesus, I welcome you to come up and take the elements. But if maybe you're a Christian and you're not in fellowship with God, maybe you've given your life to Christ, but you're in rebellion right now, I would want you to stop and examine yourself before you partake in the Lord's Supper. Maybe you start taking the just the early steps within yourself. Just take the early steps of confession and begin the, the turning away from that of which you're doing wrong, even in this moment. So both of those would be instructions to Christians. First one, Christians, just tables are open um, if you're a Christian and you're in good standing with the church and the Lord, you're walking in fellowship with him, come on up. If you're a Christian, you're not in fellowship with the Lord, you're not in fellowship with the church, and you, you're in a state of rebellion, I would just ask that you would just stay right in your seat. And lastly, if you're not a follower of Christ, I, for one, I'm so glad that you're here, but please do not come up and partake in the elements. The scriptures tell us in First Corinthians 15, they give us very particular instructions on how we should partake of the Lord's Supper. And it says when we do so, we should examine ourselves. And if our heart is not right, when we come up and take the Lord's Supper, there are dire consequences, and it says in that passage. So I don't want those consequences upon your life. But only you know the real condition of your soul and the decisions that you've made. So in just a moment, we're going to stand. And what we're going to do, the first three rows are actually going to go to this side. And the back three rows are actually going to go to this side. I would like for you to walk up the, uh, the outside wall and then back through to your chairs. We're actually going to bring the elements right back to our seats. And we're going to partake of the elements together today. So not at the table, together. So I would invite you to stand, each and every one of us, if we would please. If you're not going to partake, just let the person walk by. It's no big deal. If you are going to partake, maybe, maybe for you, you're like, you know what? I, I, don't think, I, I don't think my life measures up. Maybe for you, you just need to take that step of faith. Maybe for you, you've never given your life to Jesus at all. And maybe today is the day you just need to finally commit to say, you know what? I'm sick of doing it my way. I want to trust in the good shepherd from this day and for the rest of my days. But I want today to be the day where I cross the line of faith and you receive the salvation of Jesus. You can do that right now. You can make today one of the best celebration days of your life right now. And you can come up. You can receive Jesus right here in this moment. Please, if you would, I just feel led to do this. Please close your eyes. And just say this to yourself, not out loud, but you can say this that I'm going to say to yourself, Heavenly Father, I know I'm a sinner. I'm in need of you, Jesus. I confess that I'm a sinner. I know that you died for me on that cross. I believe that you are God. Please give me salvation. I want to be right with the Father through the Son, Jesus. Please come into my life and save me. Amen. If you have prayed that prayer and, and there's just something within you that, that feels changed, like maybe you've even you've prayed that prayer before and yet you prayed it, but you didn't mean it like you know that you mean it now. I just, I believe, and I'm just, I would just trust you that if you believe in saying that, that there's more power than just the words, that you feel this interconnection. Like now, you, you, maybe for you, some people explain it like goosebumps, but like you just have this, you feel that there's something different about you starting right now. I believe if you prayed that prayer after me and you believed it and you meant it, that you're saved, that you're saved. There's no magical formula. There are a bunch of scriptures that speak into it, but there's not one definitive scripture that says, you must read this and do this. But I believe if you said that to yourself and you meant it, that you're saved. And if you're saved, table's wide open for you. You got a brand new start. You got a brand new start. So after we take the Lord's Supper, if you said this for the very first time, Here's what I want you to do. If you said it for the very first time, I want you to meet me. I'm going to be right there at the back door. So after you partake of the Lord's Supper, I want you to get outside of your seat and go right to the back door. I know it's uncomfortable. We don't do this very often, but I believe we have to today. But if, you, if you've said it, you've never said it before or you've said it and you never believed it, like right now, I want to talk to you privately. So I will say this, as of right now, you know where you're supposed to go. Um, I'm going to pray for us. After I say amen, you can be dismissed to go. Make sure you, you interrupt through the back wall, and you'll cycle through the middle um, on each side. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. God, I'm believing that people are taking steps of faith right now. I'm believing that, that eternities have been shaped because of decisions that were just made. I'm just believing that. I don't know that, but I'm just believing that. Lord Jesus says, we go to the tables and we take of the elements. Let our hearts be open to you and surrender to you as managers of eternal life. Amen. Amen. You're dismissed to go and take the elements and then go back to your seats.